begin a new series this morning in the book of Revelation. We might be the last church in the United States to uh, do so, but you know why we've kind of gotten here. Lots of people have taught it uh, as we left Colossians and then went into Jude and then a series in 2 Corinthians. As we're turning to Revelation chapter 1, just a reminder on Sunday nights, we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we're currently uh, in the midst of uh, the book of Amos among the minor prophets tonight at 6. Each of you are invited. Amos the fig picker turned um, prophet, and what a prophet he uh, was. Verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would freshly fill us with your Holy Spirit and give us a spirit of understanding as we study your word this morning. And we pray that all of the truths and all of the intents for which this book is included in your book, the Bible, that every bit of those things would be built into our lives, our functioning in this world, our processing of this world, and most of all, into the living place in our relationship with you and with others. And we pray and we ask this for this work of your Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In this series through the book of Revelation, if you're not uh, prone to uh, carry a blank paper in your Bible or to have a bulletin and a pen to take notes, this is uh, probably a good series to, uh, to do that in as we, as we study this uh, book. Uh, verses 1 through 8 constitute the introduction to the book of Revelation. And as is the case with any uh, book that we would uh, read, if a person skips the opening uh, chapter or skips the introduction to that book, then they're going to have absolutely no hope in understanding the remainder uh, of the book. And the same thing is true of the opening chapter and the opening verses of this, uh, uh, this book, the book of Revelation. Without understanding 
this opening chapter, as we'll be studying it this week and next week, we will have uh, not be able to make any sense of the rest of the book. And so we'll spend our time here getting our bearings in the next couple of weeks and uh, kind of setting the table for the rest of the book because that's what the Holy Spirit does here as he, he lays this book out. John gives kind of a general introduction to the book here in verses 1 through 3. And first thing we learn is from the first two words of the book, uh, the revelation, uh, that this book is intended to be a revelation uh, to us. So this immediately dismisses the idea that uh, many, many Christians even hold related to the book of Revelation uh, that somehow it's a sealed book or somehow it's a closed book or it's impossible to uh, understand or that uh, as some even hold that it was never meant to be uh, understood. One scholar uh, declared uh, of this book, the book of Revelation either finds a man mad or leaves him so. Well, that's a little melodramatic. He should cut back on the caffeine a little bit. Um, but worse than that, it just simply uh, isn't true. But it's a, a wide held, uh, widely held understanding uh, of, of the book. The Greek word that the Holy Spirit uses here for revelation is apocalypsis, which means an unveiling or an uncovering. So you might picture today we're tearing uh, monuments down and statues down, but we'll go back uh, 20 years at a saner time in our country where if you were to go to a major park or plaza within a city and, they, uh, and they've taken a... Uh, and made a great bronze uh, statue, 30 feet high perhaps, of a founding father or some kind of a founding uh, uh, person of a particular city. And there it is, it's veiled in this great tarp, and the crane is above it that is tied to the tarp. And then at the moment of the unveiling, at the, at the moment of the revelation, the crane lifts the tarp up, and there we're able to see uh, the statue in all of its uh, glory, and uh, it is uncovered, it is unveiled. And so this book is not a sealed book. It's intended to be a revelation to us. It's intended to provide us with an unveiling. Now, in this regard, it's important to understand that there is a lot of symbolism in the book. There's a lot of imagery, unusual imagery, uh, within the book of Revelation but we are not left to ourselves to try and figure out what these things mean or to take pot shots at them or explain them away or add uh, more meaning to them than they're actually intended to have. It's important even as we begin the book to remember the warning that God gives at the end of the book in, turn of, in terms of playing fast and loose with the book of Revelation uh, God declares that if anyone takes anything away from the book, that he will take that person's name out of the book of life, and anyone adds to the book, he will add the judgments of the book to their life. So it's not a, 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 a book that's been given to us that we're entitled to just add every kind of fanciful idea that we might have uh, to it. There are 404 verses in the book of Revelation, 
and fully 278 of those verses have a reference to the Old Testament. And so they're, they're tied to the Old Testament. And understanding of the Old Testament is a key to understanding uh, the book of Revelation. The remaining verses between that 278 and the 404 are readily understood in terms of, uh, of the context. And so uh, the importance of this book, the Old Testament to this book, and that the book unveils itself to the person who has some knowledge of the Old Testament. And this is one of the reasons, uh, many reasons, that we teach through the entire Bible on Sunday nights, uh, from Genesis to Revelation, including the Old Testament, is in order that uh, we might know the entire Bible. Uh, and uh, here we see that we can't understand the book of Revelation without an understanding uh, of, of the Old uh, Testament. And so, uh, certainly the folly that's exposed two or three years ago where a very, very prominent pastor in the United States of America uh, called on pastors in the United States to cease teaching the Old Testament, uh, that the world uh, couldn't handle it, they wouldn't understand it, and it was a kind of a waste of time. And, uh, and, uh, and just the folly of making that kind of a statement, um, much less commending uh, those that are called to teach the Bible in its entirety uh, to leave off the entire Old Testament. Now, someone might ask, why did God choose to communicate the book of Revelation with so much symbolism? I mean, why not be uh, a lot more obvious? Why not be a lot more straightforward than... Uh, than the book is. And there are probably many reasons, but a partial reason might be that the Apostle John received this revelation uh, during the reign of the Emperor Domitian uh, uh, during the Roman Empire. Domitian began his reign as a Roman Caesar uh, very, very well. He began as one of the, the best of the Roman Caesars. But very much near the end, he really went sideways. And part of his going sideways is he meted out a terrible, terrible persecution against Christians. It's one of the reasons that uh, John uh, writes this letter or he receives this revelation from God on the Isle of Patmos, which was a, uh, a kind of a prison site, a, a site of exile under the Roman Empire. This was Domitian's uh, persecution against Paul, but he was persecuting all Christians at that uh, time. And if this revelation had fallen into the hands of the Romans, uh, it would have made no sense to Domitian or anyone else uh, or any of the many, many ungodly rulers throughout uh, human history since. Not knowing the Old Testament Scriptures, they wouldn't have been able to the, understand the book. They would have uh, been uh, just dismissed it as impossible to understand or as just mystical nonsense. And so they wouldn't have viewed it as a direct threat to their power. And so the symbolism of the book keeps the meaning obscure uh, to all but Christians, 
and, and it protected the church historically from the, the persecution that a more easily understood book about the end of man's rule in human history might have produced. But notice further that this book is not only a revelation, but specifically and supremely, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is not the book of revelations, plural. Uh, and oftentimes you'll hear people talk about uh, the book of Revelation as the book of revelations because there's so many revelations within it. But that's to completely misunderstand the book and will be, and will be to misinterpret uh, 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 the book. It is not plural, and, uh, and it contains many revelations about angels and sea, uh, uh, seals, uh, judgments and bold judgments and trumpet judgments and Jesus' second coming and the thousand-year reign of Christ, the new heaven, the new earth, all of those things, but all of them are intended to reveal something to us uh, about Jesus. And if we miss that, we'll miss the supreme reason the book is written. As the old saying goes, that history really is his story, and the book of Revelation is as well. So principally, we're going to learn a lot about Jesus here, and we know an awful lot about Jesus from the Old Testament Scriptures. We know much, much more about Jesus from the Gospels. But if we do not understand uh, what is revealed to us about Jesus in the Revelation, then our understanding of Him will be incomplete. The revelation is important in order to uh, uh, give us the full understanding that God intends us to have. And here in the revelation, we see Him glorified in heaven. Uh, we see Him return to the glory that He left in order to provide us with our salvation. And we see His ultimate triumph in human history as the King of kings and as the Lord of lords. Now notice also in verse 1 the means by which this revelation was transmitted to us or transferred uh, to us. It was given uh, by God the Father, John tells us, to Jesus, who then delivered it to his angel, who then delivered it to the apostle John, who then delivered it to us. And this reveals a couple of important things to us. It certainly produces a sense of awe within us related to the book that is open on our laps. And you think about the hands that this revelation has gone through in order that it might be in this Bible and that it might be open on our laps and in our hands uh, here uh, this morning. And then second, it tells us that uh, because this revelation comes from God, that it contains truth that we could never know apart from revelation. Either God reveals what He reveals to us in this book, or we would not know it. We could not know it. We could not come up with it uh, on uh, our own. Now, and, and this uh, 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 reveals uh, the tremendous gift that this book is to us. It also, uh, Revelation, provides us with a fitting conclusion to God's book, to, uh, to the Bible. 
Uh, in fact, the Bible would feel incomplete. It would feel like uh, we uh, kind of left it with uh, l- loose ends, uh, so to speak, if there were no revelation as a part of the book. Genesis, the first book of the Bible, it is the book of origins. That's what Genesis means. It begins with the creation of the heavens and the earth. And Revelation closes with a new heaven and a new earth. Genesis, in Genesis, Adam and Eve enjoyed the very presence of God. Revelation closes with all of God's people enjoying fellowship with God in His very presence. Genesis records the beginning of the curse uh, of the fall, including uh, sorrow and toil. Revelation closes uh, with a creation and a world in which there is no more curse and no more sorrow. Genesis records the introduction of death into the human condition. Revelation records a future in which there is no death. And on and on and on we could go to illustrate how it is that Revelation provides this uh, supernatural, this divine uh, conclusion to this uh, inspired book called the Bible. Notice too, in verse 1, that this revelation is for Jesus' servants. And uh, John, when he speaks of servants here, he is speaking of Christians in general, uh, not a specific category of Christians. John uh, assumes that all Christians uh, will also be servants of Jesus as well. But there is in this a communication that this revelation will be most appreciated by Christians who are servants, or Christians who are all in in their uh, Christian life. Servants of Jesus, at the time in which John was given this uh, revelation, uh, they were under crushing persecution, as I mentioned, under Emperor Domitian, and historically, it has been servants of Jesus Christ, people that are all in for Christ in human history, uh, uh, that have paid the greatest personal price for their faithfulness to Jesus. And this revelation provided a great encouragement to them in the form of the reminder, the thing that we can never be reminded of too often, and that is of Jesus' ultimate victory in human history. You could remind me of that every five minutes in the current condition of this world, and it would do me no harm. That's how quickly I can lose perspective and need to be reminded of just that truth uh, alone. And so the revelation provides that uh, to us as Christians. Certainly means that the Christian who's troubled in some way by the book of Revelation might want, to, uh, we might want to look at ourselves and see if we really are a servant of Jesus Christ or uh, whether uh, we're a little too heavily invested in this world and not enough in the one to come. For servants, this book will be a source of great joy and a source uh, of great hope and comfort uh, in our hearts. In verse 2, yes, We have made it to verse 2. In verse 2, the Apostle John bears witness to this revelation that was given to him by uh, God the Father and by Jesus the Son. He simply communicates that 
Uh, he was an eyewitness to everything that he's about to share uh, in this book. Notice in verse 3, you see the speed with which we're moving now, uh, that there is a special blessing that is associated uh, with this book. And John declares that the person who reads this book is blessed, the person who hears this book is blessed, and the person who obeys this book is blessed. Now, you, uh, it's good to be reminded that in the ancient world that literacy rates were not like the literacy rates of the United States of America today. Uh, not everybody could read. And so uh, this revelation would be read during a church service where people would be gathered and the pastor or leader in the church would read the book. He would be blessed in reading it. But the hearers would be equally uh, blessed in, in hearing it. But then it is interesting that John talks about uh, those who keep the things that are written within uh, this uh, prophecy. So often we can think of this book as something that is uh, to be read, something that is to be heard, but not necessarily as something that is to be kept within our minds. We think of it so often as, as just being these prophecies concerning the future, and it really has nothing to speak to us today or, or to impact our lives or require some kind of, of obedience on our part. Believing on our part, yes, but obeying, uh, maybe uh, uh, not, uh, not so much. And, uh, and when John speaks about keeping the things that are written in this book, uh, he's, he's speaking of the blessing that comes to an obedient Christian who studies it. Uh, as opposed to uh, just looking at the book as kind of prophecy fodder or end times fodder or being a prophecy uh, buff or to study it out of some kind of a, a, a curiosity. This book, as John, uh, as the Holy Spirit makes clear right at the beginning, is intended to shape how we live as Christians, not merely what we believe and what we know, but this revelation is intended to shape our behavior. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, Peter spoke in this same vein. He said, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will all be burned up. And so that's revelation. That's the latter part of revelation that, uh, that we'll get to. But he doesn't stop there. He says, therefore. Now, this is what I, I want you to get from this. He said, therefore, since all these things will be destroyed, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness. And so each of us should expect, anticipate being, uh, receiving great blessing as we head through the book of uh, Revelation. The supreme blessing of the book is what it reveals to us about Jesus. But it also provides us with the blessing of knowing uh, what it is that's going to happen in the future in human history. It supplies us with the blessing of a peace that we wouldn't otherwise know, the peace of knowing the future, uh, the peace of knowing how human history is going to end, the peace of knowing that God uh, wins. 
When you know the end of a story, then you can be at peace while the story is unfolding. It is true of a a murder mystery book or any kind of a mystery book. Um, If you know the end of the book, then you're at complete peace as you read read through all of the highs and the lows and the tension and everything uh, of the book before you get to the end. You know the hero doesn't die. You know that the hero uh, wins in the end. And, uh, and I have known a couple people personally, probably a little uh, high-strung to be sure, but they can't read a mystery, but they are mystery readers. They cannot read a mystery from the beginning to the end. It'd be a nervous wreck if they don't know the end of the book. So they read the end of the book. Would destroy the book for me. If I know the, if I know the final score of a football game, I am never going to watch that football game. Uh, or any kind of a drama or something like that. But they do it so they can then read the rest of the story and be confident in, uh, in, uh, in the end. And so to here, in, in, where the stakes are so much higher, God tells us the end of the story so that not as we would read through a piece of fiction, but so that as we live through our season, in human history, with all of the ups and downs, is this really going to happen? Are we going to make it? What's going to become of the United States or the world that we aren't driven crazy by all of the developments within the plot because we know how all of this uh, ends? And uh, so God tells us uh, the end of the story. Imagine living in the uncertainty of this world without this confidence and yet Uh, most of the world uh, does. When he talks about this blessing, it's the first of seven blessings that John mentions in the book. And we'll we'll get to the other six. But uh, it's a book that is intended to be a blessing to us as his people. Now notice at the end of verse 3 that when John John declares that uh, the time of this prophecy is near... I think immediately someone might think, well, we've been waiting for what has been prophesied in uh, the Revelation for almost 2,000 years. How in the world can John uh, write of this that we should consider it to be something that is near? Uh, Well, near is a very, very relative uh, term. And the difference between how time is counted in heaven, so to speak, and how time is measured on the earth is two entirely different things. Uh, Peter, again, he makes this clear in his second epistle, chapter 3, verse 8. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that uh, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. And so how time is measured in heaven, how it's measured on earth, two entirely different things. Additionally, Peter uh, lets us know that any apparent delay in the fulfillment of uh, the prophecies that we see here in in the Revelation, any uh, delay in that fulfillment is not due to slackness on God's part, but it's an expression of his long-suffering toward us. 
Again, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, uh, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It appears that the Holy Spirit is simply declaring here what He uh, declares everywhere else in, uh, in the Bible uh, concerning these kind of prophecies, and that is that as Christians were to be living in a constant expectation uh, of Jesus' return and the fulfillment of these prophecies. John also uh, made mention of time in verse 1. If you look back there, I know you're not in the mood to go backwards at this point, uh, but John uh, said, spoke of all of this as things which must shortly take place. That word shortly in the Greek language is um, tacos, not tacos. I get you hungry here. Second service will have more problem with that than you. But we get our English word tachometer uh, from it. And here the, is the idea that, uh, that when the revelation and the events, not that they will start suddenly, but that once they do start, things will move very, very uh, quickly. There'll be a rapid succession uh, of, of the progression uh, of, of the events. Now, in verses 4 and 5, um, John then greets the seven churches that uh, he is, this is being written to. And concerning the uh, seven churches there in verse 4, when he refers to them as being in Asia, don't think of Japan, don't think of China. He's talking about Asia, the area of, of the Roman Empire that was known uh, as Asia, and that was the, the, what we know today is the country of Turkey, and uh, specifically southwestern Turkey. Uh, John, the seven churches that John refers to, he lists them there. Uh, Jesus does actually in verse 11. And we'll look at it a little bit more uh, next time. But I do want to answer a question that someone might have uh, at this particular point uh, concerning this, where they might say, well, if this revelation is directed specifically to these seven churches, then how in the world can we apply it to ourselves today? And, and the reason is because the Holy Spirit has already made it clear in verse 3 that any Christian can read this revelation and be blessed uh, uh, by it. Later in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus is going to close seven letters that he writes to seven churches, these seven churches, and he will close with the identical words, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, these letters are not only intended for the specific churches uh, that they were written uh, to, uh, but also intended to communicate to all churches. In verse 4, uh, we have the first use of the word seven in uh, the Revelation. It's going to be used 54 times uh, in the book. And the reason that that's significant that is that in the Bible, seven is known as the number of completion. 
and uh, it has been uh, categorized by that, by the Jews in uh, time going all the way back in, in that God, when he created the heavens and the earth, he created them in six days and rested upon the seventh. There's seven days in a complete week. There are seven colors uh, in the rainbow, the rainbow being the symbol of the covenant that God made with man that he would never again destroy the earth by way of flood. And the interesting thing is, is every single time you look at a rainbow, no matter what storm, no matter what day, no matter what angle you look at it from, it is always the same seven colors all in the same uh, order and so forth. So it's known as the number of completion. And what it's communicating here concerning these churches is that these seven churches represent the complete condition uh, of the church worldwide, Christians worldwide, the individual church worldwide, uh, like ours at any given point in, in church history. And we'll see a little bit more about this when we get to chapters 2 and 3. Notice in the latter part of, of uh, verse 4 that John then greets them with the words, uh, grace to you in peace. These were, as many of you are very well aware, these grace and peace were the primary greetings to one another in the ancient world. Today we say, have a nice day, uh, keep on trucking. No, we don't really say that anymore, but we used to. As long as we didn't get a keep on trucking tattoo, we're okay. And if you got one, God bless you. Uh, it won't be on your new body when you get to heaven. But, but it was the, the Greeks, when they would greet one another, the Gentile world, they would say charis, and that was the word grace. Uh, may you have a, a, a grace-filled day. Grace means unmerited favor. May you have a great day. May you have a day that's better than you deserve. So it was a common greeting. The Jews always greeted with the word peace, the word uh, shalom. May you enjoy peace, uh, uh, peace today. And the Holy Spirit, as is, is He does so often in the New Testament, He incorporates these two greetings to communicate an important truth about our relationship with God. And that is, in our relationship with God, we will never really know peace uh, uh, with God and peace in a relationship with God if we do not know that God deals with us in, his, in his, our relationship with Him on the basis of grace. And so it is only as I'm strong in God's grace toward me as one of His children and, and grace toward me as a sinner that I will then enjoy peace in my relationship with God. This truth can absolutely revolutionize a person's Christian life, especially the more legalistic we are or the more legalistic uh, the background that we come from. This relationship with God is based upon God's grace uh, solely, and it is only because of God's grace that we can enjoy peace in that relationship. And then notice in the latter part of verse 4 and into verse 5 that John then acknowledges uh, who's the source of 
this grace-based, this peace-filled relationship with God. He informs us that this is not an invention of man. This is not something the apostles came up with uh, at all, but that it has its origin in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In other words, all three persons of the Godhead are okay. They are all in on us enjoying a grace-based relationship with God and then enjoying the peace that comes uh, from that kind of a relationship. And John describes the Father there in verse 4, the end of it, as Him who is and who was and who is to come. That the Father is eternally existent. He is outside of time. He fills the past, the present, and the future all at once. John then describes the Holy Spirit uh, at the very end of verse 4 as from the seven spirits who are before the throne. You say, what in the world does, uh, does that mean? And so we go back now to the key to understanding the book of Revelation. And we ask ourselves, is there any place in the Old Testament where the Holy Spirit is spoken of in the context of seven? And there is. And it's Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. Allow me to read it to you. And there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Speaking of Jesus, Messiah. And then hear the Holy Spirit that will rest upon him. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. So again, seven is the number of completion, and this refers to the sevenfold fullness of the Holy Spirit. He is the spirit of Jehovah, the spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And so we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to the church of Sardis in chapter 3. And then then in verses 5 through 7, in line with the entire focus of the book, John provides us with this description of Jesus. Describes him there in verse 5 as the faithful witness. Uh, That is, uh, that he is the singular faithful witness of God the Father. He is the singular faithful witness of what God the Father is like. And that's why uh, Jesus uh, spoke to Philip in uh, John chapter 14, verse 9. He said uh, to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. If you ever want to know what God the Father looks like, He looks exactly like uh, Jesus. In Jesus' teachings, in His actions, how He treated people, how He spoke to people, and so forth. And so Jesus is the faithful witness. No Christian is the faithful witness of God the Father. No church is the faithful witness. Uh, of uh, Christianity 
or of Jesus or of God the Father. Only Jesus is the faithful witness of God. And, and uh, knowing this then makes us responsible for this knowledge. And it really takes a lot of uh, excuses out of our lives or anyone's life for not becoming a Christian. So often you'll hear people say, I, I can't become a Christian. I don't want anything to do with Christianity. Uh, the churches are full of hypocrites. Well, we wouldn't mind one more. Uh, I don't know what you think you're going to bring to this buckaroo. Well, we understand. We're not supposed to be hypocrites. But if you want to find an excuse in God's people for not becoming a, a Christian or rejecting Christianity or the God of the Bible, well, you'll find plenty of opportunity. But if you look, you'll find just as many who are walking the talk and, and, uh, and talking the to uh, talk as well. And, uh, and so it's important that I come to my conclusions about Christianity, about the God of the Bible, about Jesus himself based solely uh, upon Jesus. If I'm going to reject him, if I'm going to reject the Bible, if I'm going to reject Christianity, if I'm going to reject uh, the God of the Bible, then I must find something wrong with Jesus, some flaw in Jesus, and that is something that no one will ever find. And it's good for us to be reminded of that, even as Christians, because we can get our eyes off on other people, and as you walk with the Lord for decades and decades, and you, you see enough hypocrisy, you see enough double-mindedness and enough carnality that you can throw your hands up and say, I don't want anything to do with church anymore. I don't, I'm going to walk with God, but it'll just be me uh, and, and, uh, and Him and to realize, listen, uh, the, the relationship is the relationship with Jesus. And we're not to come to conclusions about, uh, about Him, about Christianity, about obeying His Word, about fellowshipping together based upon the conduct of, of His people. He's described further in verse 5 as the firstborn from the dead. It doesn't mean that he was the first to ever rise from the dead. Firstborn in the Old Testament, again, speaks of uh, that was a position of prominence, and, and it signified someone unique and special. And so Jesus here was the first one to be resurrected with an everlasting body, and, uh, and his resurrection provides a victory over death to all who uh, are born again. He is, in verse 5, the ruler over the kings of the earth. He's absolutely sovereign over all uh, kings and rulers uh, of the earth, and, uh, and, and it's a uh, present reality. It is true about the world right now, and then one day it'll be absolutely manifest when he returns as the King of kings and Lord of lords, and then establishes his kingdom age. We're told in verse 5, he's described as him who uh, loves us or loved us, but the tense is loves as, as well. And how do we know that uh, he loves us? John answers it in the next uh, phrase, because he's washed us from our sin in his own blood. And then verse 6, he's made us kings and priests, uh, to uh, uh, his uh, God and Father. He's made us kings in that he's made us a part of his kingdom. He's made us priests in that as Christians we uh, operate 
and uh, in the twofold function of the Old Testament priests. The Old Testament priests had two functions. They represented God before the people, and then they represented the people before God. And so do we. As we live our Christian lives out, day in and day out, we represent God before the world that we live in. We're priests, but then we also represent uh, the, the world before God as we intercede for people and as we uh, pray for people. In verse 7, we're told that He's coming with clouds, and every eye will see Him, even they who pierced Him. And so He's going to descend when He does from heaven at His second coming. Uh, everyone in the world is going to uh, witness that. We'll look at that in greater depth when we come to it in uh, chapter nine, uh, 19. And then we're told further that all of the tribes of the earth will mourn because of Him. That will be the reaction of the world at Jesus' second coming. And uh, both Jew and Gentile uh, involved in Jesus' crucifixion. And there will be people, many people, who will come become Christians during the seven-year tribulation uh, period. And uh, at Jesus' second coming, uh, they will... Uh, uh, having put their faith in Christ, they will rejoice at His, uh, at his coming, uh, but they will uh, mourn at, at, at the fact that uh, they were involved in rejecting Him at any part uh, of their, their life. And then there's others that will survive the great tribulation period. They will remain hostile to Christ, and they will mourn the fact that now uh, the, the shoe is on, on the other foot, that Jesus is no longer going to be judged by them, but he is, uh, uh, they are going to be judged by Him. And John uh, declares there in verse uh, 7, he said, even so, amen. And amen means that's the truth, uh, so be it. In other words, let's get on uh, with this. Now, I, I do want to close with uh, verse 8 here. And, uh, and in verse 8, there is, which closes this section, there is a, a, a very obvious change of speaker uh, from the Apostle John uh, uh, to uh, Jesus uh, himself. And, and, uh, uh, and, and here is where Jesus declared of himself, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, and, and who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And in this, he declares three wonderful things about himself, that he is eternal, that he is self-existent, uh, speaks of the fact that he fills the past, the present, and the future. The same description given to us uh, of, of, about God the Father in verse 4. We're told, second, that he is almighty, that is, that he has uh, all might, that no one or anything will have any hope of resisting uh, the fulfillment of what occurs in uh, this revelation. And then third, Jesus declares himself to be divine. Alpha and Omega, uh, Alpha and Omega, the first and the final uh, letters of the Greek alphabet. 
And so Jesus is saying, I'm the first, I'm the last, I am everything uh, in between. Again, using the Old Testament to interpret what it is that Jesus is saying about uh, himself uh, here, uh, we know that this was uh, an Old Testament declaration of deity used by God. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 4 uh, uh, who, uh, speaking of God, who has performed and done it according to the generations from the beginning. Uh, I, the Lord, am the first and with the last, I am He. So to call Himself, Jesus, to call Himself the Alpha and the Omega is ascribing deity to Himself. Now there's some uh, debate here about whether this is God the Father who's speaking in verse 8 or uh, Jesus speaking. But it seems best to me to understand it to be Jesus because, number one, this revelation is about Jesus, and verse 7 uh, was about Jesus, verse 9 is about Jesus, and so it seems like this would be a very odd place uh, for God the Father to jump into the middle of the narrative and make this declaration concerning himself. But it would be perfectly natural uh, for Jesus to do that. Now, there are some people, like the Jehovah Witnesses, they try to explain uh, this away as having God the Father saying it, and not Jesus, because Jehovah Witnesses do not believe in the deity uh, of, uh, of Jesus Christ. And, uh, and, and so they'll say this refers to God the Father, and uh, they think that that solves their problem. And the problem with that is that even if verse 8 was God the Father, it only buys them enough time that it takes to read from verse 8 to verse 11. Because in verse 11, Jesus clearly declares himself to be, once again, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And we're positive that it's Jesus who is saying it there uh, because uh, of the, the vision. As John turns to see who has uh, said this, and he sees Jesus standing in the midst of the seven uh, lampstands, and then he receives this tremendous revelation uh, of Jesus. I remember a story, and I'll close with this, many years ago uh, related to verse 8 and its significance related to Jesus. When I was a new Christian, there was a, an apologist by the name of Walter Martin. And uh, if you think, you know, you have people that are outstanding in their field and then they uh, they go to heaven and you, uh, 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 you think, well, there are a dime a dozen, you'll just get another one that'll fill his shoes. And in my estimation, nobody has filled Walter Martin's shoes since he went to heaven. I mean, he not only had a, a, a photographic memory of, of the Bible, but the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, everything that uh, the Jehovah Witnesses did with their New World Translation, and we could just quote them one right after the other. <coughs> well, at the begin, beginning of his apologetic ministry, knowing where he was headed, <coughs> he went to the Watchtower organization uh, in New York City, Brooklyn, I believe. And he walked in there and he thought, I better get a look at what's going on here before they find out who I am further down the road. 
So he went in and he got a tour of everything. And as he's walking out of the place, he stops at the front desk where a Jehovah Witness kind of official is sitting there. And uh, Walter Martin goes over to the desk and he said to him, would you believe that Jesus is God if I could show you from the Bible? And the guy said, it's not in the Bible. Walter Martin said, that's not what I asked you. I asked you if I could show you in the Bible where Jesus declares himself to be God, would you believe it? He said, it's not in the Bible. That's not what I asked you. And he repeated it again. And then the guy said, well, I guess if you showed it to me, I would have to believe it. And he went to Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, and he pounded on the man's desk. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, who was and is. And he did it multiple times there on the desk. And then he walked out. Many years later, as he would go from city to city and do these apologetic kind of seminars that he would do, there was a man who stood up at the back of the, the room, and uh, Walter Martin uh, would take questions, but he wouldn't turn the floor over to you. And so he called on the man, and the man began to say something, and Walter Martin stopped him and uh, said, if you have a question, that's fine, but you can't uh, just say what you want to say in this meeting. He said, I think you'll like what I have to say. And he said, many, many years ago, you came into the Watchtower organization, and I was sitting at that front desk, and you came and you said, and pounded on my desk concerning Jesus, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord. And he said, I went home and tried to go to sleep that night, and all I could hear pounding in my ears was, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I am, and he said, I got on my knees and I gave my uh, life to the Lord. So this powerful revelation of Jesus the importance of recognizing that he is divine. If he is not divine, then he's not sinless. And if he's not sinless, he can't be a savior. He would need a savior himself. And so the necessity of the deity of Jesus Christ. And so quite a start really to this revelation of Jesus. Let's stand together now and we'll close our time this morning in prayer. Father, we thank you for um, the revelation of Jesus here. We thank you for what we'll yet see in this book, the peace that it gives us and the apparent uncertainty of this world that we live in, the peace that is ours at knowing how human history is going to end when there is uh, so much apparent mystery that surrounds uh, the day by day and the week by week of life. And we thank you for that peace that this book produces within us. And we thank you for our time in your word this morning in uh, just starting out. We thank you this morning for our Savior. We thank you for every revelation you want to give us concerning him. And we thank you in his name, in Jesus' name, amen.